Welcome to the Parsha Philosophy Series on the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. In this series, I consider a major question on the weekly Parsha from some of the classic works of Jewish philosophy. I develop the question and consider some possible routes towards the solution. Enjoy! What makes a good book? It must obviously have good content. It must be written well. It must be enjoyable, or at least informative. A good book is where, after reading the book, the reader feels enlightened, or even in some cases, being changed as a person. If these conditions have been fulfilled, we enjoyed it, we feel enlightened, etc. We tend to overlook one other natural feature of all human-made books, and that is that there is a natural tendency for books to contain unnecessary material. Indeed, one feature of all human-made books that might not necessarily ruin our overall view of the book is that many books contain much or some unnecessary flowery content. We understand that the human writer, human writers in general, elaborate or add unnecessary ideas for the sake of it. We understand that there is a poetic license for every writer to repeat themselves or to add even unnecessary content. The point being that a book can still be good, or even a classic, and yet contain some parts that seem unnecessary for the overall narrative or theme of the story. However, whilst this is true of human-made books, a book written by God has very different criteria. If it contains unnecessary parts, if it contains extras, elaborations, then we think that something is seriously wrong. Something is seriously amiss about this book. In fact, we may start to think that it isn't a book written by God at all, but rather a very human book that is likely to contain these unnecessary additions and elaborations. We might feel concerned if we find seemingly unnecessary, unnecessary ideas or sections of the Torah, of the Bible, that seem to play no role for the overall narrative of the Torah. In fact, their role is completely elusive. And this concern is present in this week's parasha, Parashas Noach, as I will now demonstrate. After telling us the entire story of the flood, of Noach's trials and tribulations, of the dove, of the destruction, etc. The Torah concludes with a seemingly unnecessary, extensive list of various families that emerged from Noach. The Torah writes, These are the lines of Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noach, sons were born to them after the flood. The descendants of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tuval, Meshech and Tiras. The descendants of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripas, and Togarma. The descendants of Yavan, Elisha, and Tarshish, the Kittim and the Dodanim. The descendants of Ham, Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The descendants of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka. I think we get the idea, but the list goes on. And this goes on and on for an incredible 32 verses. The entire laws of observing the Shabbos, observing the Sabbath day, such an integral part of Judaism, occupied just a few verses, whereas the genealogy of some of the nations mentioned here occupies literally dozens of verses throughout this week's parasha and other parashiot in the Torah. Now this problem 
has not gone unnoticed. The Rambam in the 50th chapter of the third section of the Guide of the Perplexed recognizes that some might indeed be perplexed by the inclusion of these extensive lists of families. He writes, and I quote, There are in the Torah portions which include deep wisdom, but have been misunderstood by many people. They require, therefore, an explanation. I mean the narratives contained in the law, in the Torah, which many consider of being of no use whatsoever, e.g., the lists of the various families descended from Noah with their names and their territories. In other words, the Rambam addresses our, addresses our problem. Why the need for these seemingly unnecessary extensive lists of Noah's family? Now, before I quote the Rambam's answer to this question, I think that it is important that we make a few points. Of course, it must be noted that there may be some esoteric wisdom hidden behind each of these verses. In fact, a quick glance at any Kabbalistic Sefer will show that there are indeed some deep esoteric Kabbalistic ideas that are being alluded to in each of these names and verses. Many people will be satisfied with the simple suggestion that the Torah included these verses because lying deep behind the surface is this hidden esoteric mystical message that is meant to be understood by those flown in Kabbalah. Some might be happy with that answer and, di- and just disregard the question entirely. But some might feel that this is simply an ad hoc way of avoiding what seems to be a serious issue. Of course, I can simply assert that whatever seems unnecessary in the Torah is simply mystical. But that is not a, a way of dealing with the issue if we assume, quite reasonably, that the Torah can be understood on some level by everyone. So, though, so although we can accept that there may be, in fact, there may be, in fact, that there are some mystical explanations of these verses, we can still legitimately wonder why these verses were included. And for this, we turn to the answer of the Rambam. He writes, It is one of the fundamental principles of the law that the universe has been created ex nihilo, and that of the human race, one individual being, Adam, was created. As the time which elapsed from Adam to Moses, Adam to Moshe, was not more than about two and a half thousand years, people would have doubted the truth of that statement if no other information had been added, seeing that the human race was spread out over all parts of the earth in different families and with very different languages, very unlike the one to the other. In order to remove this doubt, the law, the Torah, gives the genealogy of the nations and the manner how they branched off from a common root. It, named those, it names those of them who were well known and tells who their fathers were, how long and where they lived. It describes also the cause that led to the dispersion of men all over parts of the earth and to the formation of their different languages after they had been living for a long time in one place and spoken one language, as would be natural for descendants of one person. In other words... The Rambam is saying that the Torah included the genealogy of these families in order to justify the idea that all of humankind descended from a single couple, from Adam and Eve, from Adam and Chava. The people who received the Torah, and perhaps subsequent generations, if they'd opened up the Torah, read Parashat Bereshit, Parashat Bereshit, and been told, we all descended from Adam and Chava, they may have been very skeptical about the idea. 
They see people speaking different languages and different cultures, and we're expected to believe that this all originated with just Adam and Chava, with just a single couple. In order to remove this doubt, the Torah trace back their genealogy to show that, yes, indeed, everyone was descended from one couple. This is the Rambam's solution, the Rambam's answer to why the Torah lists seemingly unnecessary genealogies about the families of Nayach and subsequent generations. Now, whether or not this answer appeals to you, I think there is one serious question which I want to leave you with this week. Why is it so important that we know that we are all descended from one couple? Why is this a comparable belief to the idea that the world was created ex nihilo? Why does the Rambam think that this idea, the whole story of Adam and Chava, is so important? I mean, I understand that some beliefs are fundamental to Judaism, like Matan Torah, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, the Exodus, perhaps other episodes in the Torah. But why is the idea that we are all descended from a single couple so vital? The Torah has to go to great lengths to justify this idea. Why is it so important? I think that this question needs much thought. Thank you for listening. Shabbat Shalom and see you next week for Parashas Lech Lecha.